Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In March 1991, about 800 people attended a two-day auction at Sotheby's in New York City. Collectors, dealers, and other auction-goers had gathered for the sale of over 870 Major League Baseball items, including autographed balls and baseball cards. The most coveted card was a T-206 featuring Honus Wagner, the shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Between 1909 and 1911, the T-206 cards were included in packs of cigarettes, part promotion, part necessity, as they helped stiffen the back of the pack. But only about 50 Wagner cards exist because the American Tobacco Company ended up pulling them from cigarette packs. There's a couple of competing stories about why they were pulled. Either Wagner objected to being linked with tobacco, or he wanted more money from the tobacco company for use of his image. Either way, any time one of the cards comes up for sale, it's special. But no one predicted what happened at the Sotheby's auction in 1991. The crowd cheered and clapped as the price for the coveted card went above $300,000, then $400,000. By the time the gavel was brought down on the winning bid, the sale broke records. The mint condition Honus Wagner card sold for $451,000, the highest price ever paid at auction for any sports memorabilia. In fact, it was four times higher than the previous record. And you'll never guess who the winning bidders were. None other than hockey great Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall, the owner of the Los Angeles Kings. Just like millions of people around North America in the early 90s, the two were swept up in an unprecedented sports trading card boom, which in a few short years would go completely bust. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the great sports trading card bubble. As I mentioned, the first trading cards were introduced by cigarette companies in the late 19th century. But cards as we know them today didn't exist until Topps began selling its first line of baseball cards in 1951, when baseball legends like Yogi Berra, Roberto Clemente, and Mickey Mantle dominated the sport. Bagley works carefully. The count reaches two and two. And then Mantle hammers the ball down the right field line and into the stands, only a few feet fair. The Yankees lead one to nothing. For the most part, Topps baseball cards and the other brands that followed were mainly collected by kids for fun. They traded them with friends, threw them against the wall in a game of wallsies, or mounted them on the spokes of a bike to hear that amazing thwacking noise. When kids grew out of their collections, the cards were often thrown in the garbage. Thanks, Mom. But in some cases, they were stashed away in boxes, gathering dust in basements and attics across North America, where they remained mementos of years past. 
That is until the 1970s, when a small number of serious card collectors predicted that some of those cards were not just dust collectors. They were a commodity with real value attached to them. Cards that had previously been worth a few cents were now selling for a few dollars at trade shows that had started popping up in parts of the United States. So these serious card collectors crisscrossed the country buying up as many cards as they could. And they had a pretty unique way of doing it. In a 2010 book about trading cards called Mint Condition, author Dave Jameson says collectors would take a 10 or 15 day road trip to a particular part of the country to buy up as many cards as possible. They rented some space in a local Holiday Inn and put ads in local newspapers offering cash for old baseball cards. People showed up in droves to sell their old cards, not really understanding their value. And that's because at the time, there was no real price guide to tell them what cards were worth. But that was about to change. A statistics professor from Bowling Green University, who was also an avid card collector, was among those traveling around the country buying up cards. James Beckett III noticed there often wasn't a consensus about the market value of baseball cards. So he set out to change that. Beckett pulled several hundred dealers and collectors and using his stat skills, compiled a list of cards and how much they had sold for in recent months. In 1977, he published a basic price list. And two years later, in 1979, he released the Sport Americana Baseball Card Price Guide, which was updated annually. Eventually, Beckett launched the Beckett Baseball Card Monthly magazine, which author John Waldman says became the Bible of card collectors, young and old. Uh, what Beckett did is they would actually solicit uh, pricing uh, annually from collectors and dealers. And then on a regular basis, they would solicit information from dealers. They would call out to their dealer network, uh, see how particular cards are pre being priced out, bearing in mind regional uh, premiums, etc. Beckett's magazine, which reached a circulation of about 1 million, also taught collectors to consider the condition of the cards they were buying or selling. The magazine included one of the very first card grading systems, providing definitions for what was considered mint, excellent, very good, good, fair, and poor. Beckett's and other guides like Canadian Sports Card Collector were game changers. They helped to legitimize and standardize the growing trading card hobby. Not only did they report on card prices, they also helped determine prices that continued to grow year after year. Between 1978 and 1988, the price of baseball trading cards rose 38%. And as prices climbed, some people began looking at trading cards as a legitimate alternative to investing in stocks. They began buying up lower price cards in hopes that their value would continue to climb. You know, the old strategy, buy low, sell high. There was a real buzz about sports cards as an easy way to make money kind of like the other 90s phenomenon, Beanie Babies. And soon, a brand new trading card company added to the growing excitement by taking the hobby to the next level. The Upper Deck Trading Card Company started out as a card shop in Anaheim, California, owned by Bill Hamrick. In 1988, he teamed up with Paul Sumner, a publishing company executive, and together, the two men set out to revolutionize what they viewed as a stale, stodgy industry. 
They believed baseball cards didn't have to look so bad. It was time to replace the cheap paper stock and wax packs filled with stale bubble gum. But getting a license to make cards was harder than they expected. They were struggling to get a callback from anyone in the baseball players union, which controlled the licensing rights to players' images. Lucky for them, a major league pitcher came to the rescue. Dwayne Buse was a relief pitcher for the California Angels, and after attending an autograph signing session at the Upper Deck Card Store, he struck up a friendship with shop owner Bill Hemrick. Buse helped secure a deal with the MLB Players Association for a 12% stake in the new card company. With a licensing deal in place, the new company released its inaugural set of cards in February 1989, flipping the industry on its head with the first-ever premium card set. The Upper Deck 1989 baseball box set contained high-quality glossy stock cards with dazzling color photos. And each card came with a hologram to prevent counterfeiting. They were packed in foil, not wax, and there was no gum to ruin the stunning images. And not just that, the set included one of the most famous, if not the most famous rookie card of all time as the number one card in the box. One of the first employees at Upper Deck was 18-year-old Tom Guideman. He had worked at the Upper Deck card store during high school and after graduation was hired as a product analyst at the brand new company. It was his job to select the 700 players in the first Upper Deck set and come up with an order. Guideman was an avid collector himself, and he knew right away that he wanted to use rookie cards as the first ones in the box, since that's what everyone was chasing. So he set aside the first 26 spots for a subset called Star Rookies, with the number one spot reserved for the best rookie. But who would that be? Well, Guideman narrowed it down to four rookies. Greg Jeffries, Sandy Alomar Jr., Gary Sheffield, and Ken Griffey Jr. And in the end, he settled on the kid. So Griffey was the perfect marriage of time and opportunity. Upper Deck identified him as one of the top prospects in the game, as did so many others. Not every card company was smart enough to make Griffey Jr. front and center in their 1989 box set. In fact, Topps didn't even have him in its original 89 set. But thanks to an 18-year-old just out of high school, Upper Deck nailed it. You had this image of a very young Ken Griffey Jr., um, just a, a very basic smiling headshot that really was attractive. It was a nice, attractive card on a high-gloss, high-quality paper stock that looked and felt like something premium. You might be interested to know that the close-up picture of Griffey Jr. with a bat resting on his shoulder was actually doctored. It shows the outfielder wearing a blue turtleneck collar, a gold chain, and baseball hat with the yellow S of the Seattle Mariners. But the photo that Upper Deck used was actually one taken when Griffey was still playing in the minors for the San Bernardino Spirit. Using a $1 million Skytex machine that was essentially the Photoshop of the 90s, the S on Griffey's cap was changed from silver to yellow and the star behind it was removed. The color of the cap was changed from navy blue to the Mariner's royal blue. But Griffey's navy turtleneck wasn't lightened to match it. 
Putting Griffey in the Mariners' uniform in the number one spot was a bit of a gamble for Guideman and Upper Deck, but it paid off. 20, 25 years from now, you're going to want to say, I was there when Ken Griffey Jr. made his home debut. So don't forget that on Monday night. There's a drive into the gap in left center field and deep left center field, and Henderson's not going to get to it. It's off the base of the wall, and Griffey to second base in his first major league at bat, a ringing double off the 375 marker, and we have seen that all spring. Welcome to the show, Ken Griffey Jr. Griffey, of course, made the Mariners out of spring training in 89 and never looked back. And because Griffey's career was on such a quick upward trajectory, he became the face of the baseball card hobby. The Upper Deck 1989 MLB set really was head and shoulders above the rest of the trading cards out there. And there was a price to pay. A pack of 15 cards retailed at an unheard of $1, which was twice the price of competitors. But that didn't stop collectors who lined up outside stores to snap up Upper Deck cards. In fact, John Waldman explains that the higher prices may have actually fueled higher sales. All of a sudden, there was this gauge that all that there that some cards are worth more than others. Um, that's a Ken Griffey Jr. upper deck card is worth more than a scorecard by the simple fact that it has a, a higher suggested retail price at the, to start with. In its first year in business, Upper Deck logged $48 million in sales, and the company wasn't done innovating. In 1990, it became the first to add an autograph card in every pack of baseball cards. The success of Upper Deck was a turning point for the industry. It caused a domino effect, as other sports card companies like Score and ProSet started putting more effort into their products in an attempt to keep up. Uh, they had glossy coatings. They had unique features such as having holograms or having uh, different, more inserts, more limited cards that were coming out of packages uh, versus what had been there previously. It was essentially an arms race as card companies tried to outdo each other. Meanwhile, baseball card collectors bought as many cards as they could afford and put them away in hopes that they would one day be worth big bucks. This created an illusion of scarcity. It appeared that certain cards were hard to find, but it was because collectors, now in their 20s and 30s, who may have thrown out all their cards as kids, were not going to make that mistake again. They carefully stashed away unopened boxes of card sets, hoping that there was a card inside that might be as valuable as, say, a 1952 Mickey Mantle card one day. At the same time, trading card companies cranked up production. They never really revealed how many cards were being printed, but some estimates put the number at close to 80 billion cards a year. That's billion with a B. All of this was a recipe for an unprecedented boom, not just for baseball cards, but all major sports, basketball, football, and of course, Canada's favorite sport, hockey. Before 1990, hockey cards were considered a niche hobby, mainly for kids and diehards who collected Topps cards in the U.S. and OPG cards in Canada. Then, like baseball cards, hockey cards exploded in popularity. Part of the reason was because in 1990, the NHL let three new card companies into the fold, signing licensing agreements with Score, ProSet, and Upper Deck. After the success of its MLB 1989 box set, 
Upper Deck branched out into the world of hockey and applied some of the same techniques to its first set of NHL cards for the 1990-91 season. Once again, collectors were blown away by Upper Deck's flashy cards with vivid coloring that included a rink-shaped hologram on the back with the company's name to prevent counterfeits. The set also included special Wayne Gretzky cards, which were called stereograms. Using new technology, Upper Deck created a three-dimensional card that was supposed to show the great one in motion as the card was moved. But to be honest, the quality wasn't that great. Either way, there were three different Gretzky stereograms, which were randomly inserted in every eighth or ninth foil pack. There was also holograms of Brett Hall, Mark Messier, and Steve Eiserman. And again, the price point was a bit higher than other cards, with packs retailing for a dollar each in Canada and 79 cents in the US. But the most coveted hockey card, the one everyone was looking for that year, couldn't be found in the Upper Deck NHL sets. Card collectors were tearing packs open in search of a 17-year-old junior player who wasn't even eligible for the NHL draft until 1991. Score Hockey, which was part of the Pinnacle Trading Card Company, signed an exclusive deal with Eric Lindros while he was still playing for the Oshawa Generals. As part of the deal, Lindros could not appear in any other hockey card sets until he played his first NHL game. Score had taken a gamble on the most talked-about prospect since Wayne Gretzky, and it paid off. The card featuring Lindros in his general's uniform, with the heading Future Superstar, quickly became the most coveted card of the 90-91 season. Collectors hoped the card would become as valuable as Gretzky's Topps rookie card from the 1979-80 season. In 1990, it was valued between $300 and $500, up from $25 in the 80s. Lindros wasn't the only sought-after rookie card that year. Collectors were also stashing away multiple copies of cards featuring Sergei Fedorov, Yermir Yager, and Jeremy Roenick, hoping they would also climb in value. All the hype around rookie cards, plus the flashy lines introduced by Score, Upper Deck, and ProSet, meant the hockey card industry was exploding. And similar to what was going on with baseball, collectors were hoarding cards, and that was creating a sense of scarcity. But it was just an illusion. Over the next couple of years, the number of trading card brands selling hockey cards grew to nine. Plus, food companies like Kraft Dinner and Captain Highliner were including cards with their products. And you could even get them at McDonald's. It's the very best of the NHL. The McDonald's Upper Deck All-Star Collector Series. Each pack of four, 29 cents with any soft drink purchase. 31 exclusive cards in all, including six amazing holograms. The McDonald's Sports Upper leagues Deck also wanted to cash in on this boom, so they issued an unprecedented number of licenses. More companies and lines of cards were introduced. Hobby shops, Walmart, and just about every convenience store and gas station sold a dizzying array of brands and sub-brands. By 1995, there were an avalanche of cards on the market. For example, Topps had 23 lines, Fleer and Pinnacle each had 22, Upper Deck 15, and Donruss 7. For some, it was too much of a good thing. Collectors were having trouble keeping up with all the choices. They couldn't figure out which ones to collect. So in some cases, they didn't, tapping out of the hobby altogether. 
Card companies tried to keep people interested by adding more and more inserts or chase cards, including something referred to as game-used cards. These highly sought-after treasures commonly come with a tiny piece of a game-worn jersey or something else used in an actual game. John Waldman says the concept started with NASCAR racing cards. There's a company called Press Pass that were able to get race-used tires and chop them up and incorporate uh, swatches of the material into their cards. Uh, that's migrated very quickly after that to all sports. And it started, yes, with jerseys, but you got other pieces of material coming in as well. You got hockey sticks, baseball bats, baseballs, footballs, etc. Just very quickly, anything that could be that was on the field could then be put into a card. But it didn't seem to matter what the card companies were offering. By 1995, the bubble had burst. Overproduction and too many licenses handed out by sports leagues were the main killers. But it also didn't help that there were two major labor disruptions in the same year. The baseball strike and the NHL uh, lockout coinciding in 1994 had a major impact on the, on the markets that now you didn't have rookies that you were following and all of a sudden there were there there was became a lack of interest and in, you know why should I be picking up cards of that of players that I'm not that are I'm either perceiving as greedy or am I that I'm perceiving as hey I can't see these guys right now what is why should I be following this so closely almost as quickly as it began the sports card boom was over At the peak in 1991, the trading card industry reported yearly sales of $1.2 billion. By 1995, it was down to $700 million. And it would continue falling until it bottomed out at about $200 million a year in 2010. As a result, much of the industry disappeared or was consolidated amid bankruptcy. Card shops that had sprung up in almost every city were dropping like flies. Owners were stuck with unopened merchandise that card companies wouldn't buy back. And as a result, thousands of those shops were forced to shut down. As for collectors, they left their binders and boxes of 90s cards in storage, hopeful that they would be worth something in the future. But more than 25 years later, that day has never come. Most cards from the era are essentially worthless. Even the coveted Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card didn't really pan out. Best case scenario, it might pull in about 50 bucks. That's because more than 2 million of the Griffey cards were distributed by Upper Deck. And thanks to all the hype around the card, collectors immediately put them in plastic sheets or cases, hoping they would eventually be worth a fortune and maybe pay for college tuition. So today, most of them remain in mint condition. But recently, something happened that helped put trading cards back in the spotlight. When the pandemic hit, a new generation of hobbyists was born. Stuck at home, people began Googling their way out of boredom, researching everything from cryptocurrencies to NFTs. And along the way, some discovered a renewed interest in trading cards, resulting in a surprising boom. Not like the 90s, but pretty dramatic. For example, a gem mint copy of the 1986-87 Fleer Michael Jordan rookie card sold for $720,000 in January 2021, up from $39,000 just a year earlier. 
The sale sent shockwaves through the industry, and it sent collectors plunging into basements and attics looking for cardboard gold once again. And it set off a wave of record-breaking card sales. In May 2021, Wayne Gretzky's 1979 rookie card sold for a whopping three and three quarters of a million dollars, higher than any other NHL card ever. In August 2021, a T206 Honus Wagner card sold at auction for a record $6.6 million. Then just this year, in August 2022, a 1952 Mickey Mantle card sold at auction for a jaw-dropping $12.6 million, making it the most valuable sports collectible in the world. The collector who sold the mint condition Mantle card bought it in 1991 for $50,000 and kept it hidden away until he felt the moment was just right. And remember that Honus Wagner card that Wayne Gretzky bought with Bruce McNall in 1991? Well, things didn't end well. That Gretzky Wagner, as it's referred to, went on quite a journey after the pair purchased it, changing hands multiple times. After Bruce McNall went to jail for fraud in 1995, a story that deserves its own episode, Gretzky sold the Honus Wagner to Walmart for $500,000, which used it as a prize in a contest. The winner of the card, a postal worker from Florida, couldn't afford the taxes, so he sold it at auction for over $600,000. In 2000, the Gretzky Wagner became the first card ever to fetch a million dollars, selling between two private collectors for $1.27 million. Then in 2007, Ken Kendrick, principal owner and managing general partner of the Arizona Diamondbacks, purchased it for $2.8 million. But in 2013, the card's value evaporated overnight when Bill Mastro, a sports memorabilia kingpin who you may have seen on American Greed, admitted he trimmed the edges of the Wagner card in 1985 to make it appear like it was in better condition so that it could sell for more money. There had been whispers for decades that Mastro had altered the card, something he vehemently denied. But Mastro finally came clean while on trial for mail fraud. He was accused of committing numerous acts of fraud over a seven-year period, including using auction house employees and other consigners, relatives, and even a priest to artificially jack up the price of items in his auction house by placing fake bids, something known as shill bidding. Mastro pleaded guilty and was sent to jail for 20 months and received a $250,000 fine. Ken Kendrick still owns the trimmed T206 Wagner card. In 2019, he told the New York Times that he'd heard the rumors that the card had been altered before he bought it. But he said he wanted to have the card anyway, and he still wants it. Despite the many ups and downs of the sports card industry, the hobby remains a beloved pastime for many collectors today, who still get a rush of adrenaline as they rip open packs of cards. Some even do it on YouTube so others can watch as they search for their white whale card. The white whale is, it goes back to Moby Dick. It's the one piece that every collector individually wants for their own collection. Uh, some collectors, it's that they want a card from the early 1900s. For other collectors, it's that rare single card to complete their LeBron James collection. Um, and often these are so rare that you cannot find them 
very easily by any stretch of the imagination. And that's where you might get somebody ripping op open box after box or watching video after video, searching for any kind of presence of that singular card. Um, and as somebody who has my own uh, list of white whales, it can be, and a couple that I have been able to thankfully accomplish, it can be a struggle, but it's also a lot of fun. It's what it, it is those white whales and some of those chase cards that really drives that innocence of the hobby that it's not just the investors who are in it but it, that you're at the heart of it you're you're having some fun uh collecting this in one way or another thanks for listening to this look back at the great sports trading card bubble of the 1990s and thanks to my guest john waldman he's an avid card collector and author of several books including Gotem, Gotem, Needem, a fan's guide to collecting the top 100 sports cards of all time. I'll put info in the show notes in case you're interested in checking it out. Also, if you'd like to hear my full conversation with John, pop over to Patreon, where you can subscribe for less than a pack of hockey cards and get exclusive access to uncut interviews and some other cool stuff. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash history of the 90s. And thanks to these new subscribers, Joseph Martin, Christy Reed Hauser, Jamie Ann C., Michelle Thalacker, Syl, Richard, Courtney Hoffbauer, and Joseph Burns. It's great to have you and your support is always appreciated. You can also find the show on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and Instagram at That 90s Podcast. Also happy to hear from you by email. If you have any show suggestions or other comments, just send me an email at 90s at curiouscast.ca. That's 90s at curiouscast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 